I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson, and in a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American empire and national security state operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Producers credits for this edition of Parallax Views. Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Galen, Brian, The War Nerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Justin, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Fabian, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, and The Mayor, Framework, M-E-E-R, Framework. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, consider joining those listeners at the $10 tier or above at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And now, on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we're going to be taking a break from our Ukraine coverage. We are instead going to be covering Libya, as well as North and South Korea. Later on in the program, we'll be speaking with Andrew Corbley of World at Large, whose work is sometimes syndicated at antiwar.com, to talk about the election of a new president in South Korea with hawkish tendencies and what that may mean for the continuation of the Asia-Pacific arms buildup. But first, we're going to be speaking with award-winning journalist Mustafa Fatori about Libya, a country that has been in turmoil for over a decade now. The country's presidential election was supposed to occur in December 2021, but was postponed. Our guest has a lot to say about the reasons for that, and much, much more, including giving context for the turmoil Libya has found itself in over the years. So with that being said, let's get right to it with Mustafa Fatori. Welcome to Parallax Use, a guest that I'm very happy to have on the show, uh, Libyan academic and award-winning journalist, Dr. Mustafa Fatori. How are you doing today? I'm fine, Michael. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be with you and thank you for the invitation. Dr. Fatori, I wanted to have you on this program to talk about a piece you wrote in the Washington Report on Middle Eastern Affairs. Uh, which dealt with the year ahead for uh, North Africa, um, especially uh, Libya. And, you know, we just came off of the Libyan elections uh, being postponed yet again. We were supposed to have them, I believe, on December 24th of last year. Uh, But 
they, I guess, have been pushed back now to June. Uh, what exactly happened? Why, why are there these issues uh, with the Libyan elections? Well, it depends on many factors, you know, and it also depends on whom you ask. And uh, But generally speaking, the main reasons for the postponement of the election, one is the attempt of the establishment or so-called establishment, if one exists in the country, to kick out Saifur Islam al-Gaddafi, the son of the late leader, Muammar al-Gaddafi, out of the race for the presidential election simply because they thought uh, he's, he's going to win. And every uh, opinion poll, if you like, not very professional opinion polls conducted at the time, but some indicates that he's going to win. That's the first reason. The second reason, uh, security-wise, there have been a lot of security problems, not only in the capital itself, Tripoli, but also in different uh, parts of the country, you know, a few kilometers away from the capital, the government of national unity uh, doesn't really have any control as you move away from the capital itself. And uh, as you go deep into the south, for example, a thousand kilometers away or uh, into the east, it's totally different picture. Uh, the, the government does not exist uh, almost entirely, uh, especially in Eastern Libya, where you have General Haftar, who is the dominant force in the, eastern, the in the east of the country, and he was also a candidate for the presidential race. The third reason was for the postponement was the disagreements between the House of Representatives, the Parliament, and the uh, another house, which is called the High Council of State, about the election laws. You know, the, the House of Representatives passed the laws uh, quite early in September, I guess, and uh, the the uh, it's supposed to have done so with consultation or after consultation with the High Council of State. But the High Council of State came out complaining that they were not uh, consulted about the election laws, particularly the presidential election, and mainly because the law did allow people like Saifur Islam and Gaddafi, as well as uh, General Haftar, to be able to contest the elections. Those are the three main reasons. And then you have uh, another reason, which is directly related to the election commission, the, na the National Election Commission in the country, which came out complaining also about a few logistical issues here and there. It's a vast country. Libya is a very big country, over 1.7 million square kilometers. And the election commission apparently had some kind of uh, issues to do with, uh, you know, transporting election uh, ballot boxes and uh, appointing supervisors and this this kind of thing. So uh, in the overall picture, uh, while the country was ready for uh, for the elections last December, as you uh, rightly said, uh, a reality, you know, it, it was a little bit far from it. It's not really 100% ready for elections. 
for my audience, especially the American audience that, that I have, how do you go about explaining uh, to people unfamiliar the issues that Libya has been facing? Um, because th this is a, I think, decade long problem um, in a way at this point uh, since the overthrow of uh, Muammar Gaddafi. So, so maybe you could explain to my listeners the, the history that has led Libya to this point. Well, that's a very good question, particularly for your audience, as you've said. Uh, we all remember that uh, the whole thing, you know, the whole problems we have in Libya, which are monumental nowadays, started back in 2011. In 2011, what happened was uh, the United Nations Security Council, where America, as well as other countries have a veto power. So what they say goes, what they re reject doesn't go, doesn't pass the council, decided to take a military action in, uh, under the pretext of uh, 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 you know, protecting civilians. At the time, we had uh, bombular eruptions, kind of civilian demonstrations across the North Africa, starting from Tunisia, before it moved on to, uh, to Egypt and then came back to Libya in the middle between the two countries. The problem with that decision, the, the, uh, led by the United States, of course, uh, the Security Council Resolution 1973, the problem with that one, it authorized the use of force to protect civilians by the international community, of course, or so-called international community, whereby they established a no-fly zone over Libya. They controlled the skies and they started bombing the country uh, from uh, March 19th, with the anniversary of which just uh, a day or two away from us, until October 20, uh, uh, 30th, I'm sorry, 2011. So in the period of... Uh, Nearly eight months, Libya was under continuous bombardment nonstop around the clock. That destroyed, first thing, much of the country. Second thing, uh, the, inf the infrastructure, of course. And third thing, and most importantly, it destroyed, it destroyed the, uh, the security forces as well as the military. So by the time Gaddafi was murdered in the 20th of October, we, many Libyans and many international observers believe that NATO forces actually helped killing him because they helped uh, the rebels on the ground, most of which are Islamists, fundamentalists, and former terrorists, uh, as we have discovered later on. Uh, I was saying many observers believe that the NATO forces as well as, uh, as intelligence services helped those guys locate where he is when he was uh, fleeing his hometown search in the early hours of October the 20th, 2011. So by the time he was murdered in, in the same day, October 20th, Libya ended up in chaos. It had no organized military. The whole uh, security forces were disbanded and in a state of chaos. There is no leadership to lead them. And of course, the civil administration suffered the same fate. So that led to a kind of, uh, you know, uh, the, the earlier stages of falling state. So we ended up with a country actually that does not have any kind of government. 
and it became so difficult to govern because mainly for security reasons, of course, because of the security situation, we ended up with hundreds of uh, armed militias in different places in the country, especially in the capital. There were a time, there was a time uh, around 2013, 2014, when the capital of Tripoli, home to about 2 million of Libya's 6.5 million population, was home to something like between 400 and 500 armed militias, ranging in numbers from a few hundred uh, to a few thousand. And most of those people are just criminals. You know, most of them used to be in jail or you know, they, they have a very bad criminal records as well as uh, well-known Islamists who used to be in prison or abroad. Some of them were actually, you could say, quote, graduates of Guantanamo Bay, as well as Tora Bora in Afghanistan. So you ended up with, the, with this kind of mix uh, all over Libya. There is no central authority. There is no central government that's able to exercise its existence as well as enforce law and order across Libya. And then in 2014, we had a different kind of conflict whereby a division between east of the country as well as the west where the capital is uh, became very abhorrent. And then despite the fact that we had election in 2012 and then another election, legislative election, I mean, in 2014, all that uh, did not solve the problem of bringing back the state to the position or the place it used to be in 2011, where we used to have central government control under Gaddafi, very good security apparatus, people are safe, uh, the economy was running fine, everything was good. Suddenly, all that is gone, and we woke up the next morning to virtually there is no state at all, there is no government at all. So we ended up in this mess because the Americans, as well as the French and the British, uh, decided wrongly, of course, and hypocritically, that Libyan civilians needed the protection in 2011, simply because they claim they were civilian demonstrating against the regime of Colonel Gaddafi, while Gaddafi uh, using extreme force uh, 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 to prevent that, including they claimed in the media bombings of civilian demonstrations as well as neighborhoods inside Tripoli, none of which, of course, could have been uh, was verified at the time and never did, even today, eleven years after the fact. So it was uh, the golden, I would say, the golden opportunity for the Americans as well as the British and the French to get rid of Gaddafi once and for all. After so many years, over 40 years, they have tried every possible way to get rid of him, but none of that worked. The thing that they never thought what will happen to Libya after he goes. They did not have any kind of plan for the day after. Yes, please. I just wanted to interject briefly. You know, I, I think uh, a lot of Americans have their own opinions um, based on what they've read about Gaddafi. But th the fact to me is that regardless of what one thinks of Gaddafi and uh, some of the accusations made against him um, here in the U.S., 
ultimately what has happened is a total destabilization of Libya uh, since his death. And I, I think America needs to uh, understand that. Well, that's very much the point, and not just that. It's not just total destabilization of Libya itself, but the entire region of North Africa, as well as the entire African Sahara region, which extends from the Atlantic all the way to west to the to the Red Sea, Sudan. So, even if we consider the 1973 UN Security Council resolution. Actually, the resolution did not call for regime change, did not allow the regime change. It was illegal to do so. And what it called for was a protection of civilians. But the, the West, as I said, they got this opportunity they have been waiting for for decades to get rid of the guy. And that's what they did. So they actually transpassed and violated uh, the Security Council resolution in 1973. And we ended up in the situation I have been explaining just uh, a second ago. Furthermore, now you have problems in southern and uh, in, in the, uh, in the uh, African countries that are adjacent or near to Libya, starting with Niger, as well as Mali, extending all the way to Burkina Faso and major countries like Nigeria. And you have uh, extremists fighting there. You have separatists. Movement. You have uh, uh, extreme Islamists uh, like Al Qaeda and Islamic State. All of them are there, and mainly because of what happened in Libya. Was Libya was a kind of uh, you know uh, uh, the security band, if you like, of the whole region. So if once you destabilize Libya and Libya becomes you know uh, stateless kind of way, you know without a central a strong central government. Uh, you know, you have all these consequences across uh, not only uh, North Africa, but also into the South. So we had, for example, in North Africa, neighboring Tunisia, which is Libya's Western neighbor, as well as Algeria, have seen increased number of terrorist accidents, you know, terrorist attacks on their borders. Plus, Libya became, you know, the, the extremist organization, especially, especially Islamic State in 2015, inside Libya itself, as well as, as, well as Al-Qaeda, it became a magnet for all those you know, extremist elements uh, to come over into the country and participate in what they call jihad. So we had a lot of, a lot of those people coming via Turkey from Syria, mostly from Syria, and some from uh, as far away as uh, Afghanistan. And then we have, of course, uh, the, the Europeans, you know, who are volunteering before, before 2011, uh, during 2011, I'm sorry, not after, uh, to fight the government in Libya. So you ended up with a very uh, a kind of uh, a mix that is going to hurt the whole region, not just Libya. And that's what happened. So destabilizing Libya was a great mistake. And even more greater, greater, even greater mistake was the fact that the West, led by the United States and France in 2011, did not have any kind of a plan to what will happen to Libya once Gaddafi goes. And I, I think it's interesting because now, as far as I can tell, uh, Libya is not very high on the priorities list of the sort of makers 
of U.S. foreign policy. And I, I believe there's also, I don't know if you can comment on this, other elements uh, trying to be involved in Libya right now, uh, such as Turkey. And there's also been a lot of talk of uh, the Wagner Group, uh, which is associated with Russia. So what is going on with all these different elements, the U.S. and, and other elements uh, foreign to Libya? Um, what is their role in all this? Well, the, the whole issue in Libya, the whole problem in Libya started because of the extreme ways of uh, foreign interference in the country's affairs back to, uh, we, we go back with this to 2011. So it started then because the, the, the so-called civil war in Libya spiraled out of control because of the NATO intervention, as well as, of course, the Western intervention, as well as some regional countries uh, like Turkey, because Turkey happened to be a member of NATO as well. And then this continued in different forms. You know, we have Gulf states like a small Qatar, uh, for example, in the Gulf region, that, that was support, supporting financially as well as in terms of flying, uh, supplying military hardware, certain militias inside Libya, particularly inside the capital, Western Libya. And then you have the Turks doing the same, supplying this kind of, uh, these kind of militias, simply based on ideological ideas, because most of them are Islamists, as I mentioned earlier. And Turkey, especially Mr. Erdogan, the president, wants to play the role of the caliph, you know, the, the, the leader of the Islamic world, and so on and so forth. Uh, he has been playing this card for quite a long time, supporting different groups, including ISIS, you know, including the Islamic State. And then uh, the, 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 the kind of big flip, if you like, happened in 2014, because in 2014, uh, the, after the failure of the election, those who were elected, the new parliament members, you know, uh, were chased out of the capital. So they could not work in the capital. Say so they fled east into uh, the, the far eastern city of Tobruk. And uh, Mr. Hafter, who is a dual citizen of U.S. and Libya, he's an American citizen. He has lived in America for almost uh, nearly three decades, I believe but more than two decades anyway, and he became uh, an American citizen. Mr. Hafter was in East Libya at the time, 2014, and he started to, you know, uh, try to enforce his, enforce his, uh, his way of life, if you like, his way of thinking on the Eastern region of the country, and also try to prevent uh, you know, protect himself, if you like, and his family, because at the time in 2014, most of Eastern Libya was under control of different Islamist groups, and they started just in day broad daylight, you know, assassinating security personnel as well as military officers, include like Mr. Hafter, and uh, civilian leaders and politicians, and you name it, journalists, and they killed hundreds of people just in broad day, uh, broad daylight, uh, especially in Benghazi, in East Libya. Seeing this- And, and this Hafter, is, not to interrupt you, but this is, we're talking about General Khalifa Haftar. Exactly. Okay, go on. Yes, yes. Uh, so Mr. Haftar came up with the idea of forming small units of the former army, you know, the, the Gaddafi army. He was one of the army, uh, belonged to the Gaddafi regime b b before he fell out with him in the, uh, in the 1980s and fled 
to uh, to uh, to America after being captured as a prisoner of war in Chad. That's a long story. Anyway, so Mr. After tried to collect, you know, reorganize the remnants of the Briefis Army. Most of the uh, high-ranking uh, officers know him personally, and uh, they used to be his. Uh, but in arms, and uh, they, they they came along and formed the Libyan National Army and trying to cleanse, according to him, Eastern Libya from terrorist groups and anybody, actually anybody who opposes him. And he succeeded to a greater extent in becoming, uh, and, and becoming uh, a serious contender for power. In the, first in Eastern Libya, and then starting from 2017 and uh, 2016 across Libya, because he had spread some forces into the south, he controlled some of the uh, southern regions. And by the end of 2016, uh, after two years, two years after starting his campaign, he controlled the entire or 80 percent of the uh, oil producing uh, region in the middle of Libya. So he was he was in control, more or less, of the economy of the money. The cash machine is the oil. And here, he needed some kind of help from different sources. So he got help from the Emirates. He got help from the Egyptians. And then the Russians came along. Before they send in the, uh, the uh, Wagner group to help him in 2019. Right, the, the group of uh, private mercenaries for people that are unfamiliar. But go, go on. Exactly. Exactly. Before they send in the Wagner Group mercenaries to help him uh, physically in, in, in the military campaign he launched in 2019, they already have very good relationship with him. They actually knew him from his days in, with the Gaddafi in the 80s. So they knew him personally even before that, before uh, 2016. He visited Moscow a number of times. And he was received by Russians across the region, wherever there's a possibility, like in Cairo and in Turkey. And he became a prominent figure in the future of Libya. So he decided, with the approval of the uh, former president of the United States, Donald Trump, and his security advisor, uh, the notorious John Bolton, uh, he, he, and that is in 2019. He decided to take over power by force. So he decided to invade the capital, uh, Tripoli, which is something like 1,000 plus kilometers away from his uh, base in eastern Libya. And here comes the Wagner fighters. And uh, he ended up having something like between 2,500 and 3,000 Russian fighters, mercenary fighters on the ground whereby the opposing side, the government in Shibori, the government national court at the time it was called, they already have thousands of uh, Syrian mercenaries brought in by Turkey, as well as Turkish troops. And the battle went on, and the siege uh, of Tripoli went on for about 13 months. But by June 2020, Mr. Haftar was losing. And by the end of that month, in June 2020, he lost the war. And he retreated to where he is now. That's in the middle of Libya, still in control of the oil fields and the rest of Eastern Libya. So most of what is going on, even in terms of political quarrels that never end between the different factions inside the country, inside Libya today, when you go deeper into it, it comes out the fact that 
because of the foreign countries interfering constantly in the Libyan affairs. So the situation, both politically as well as in terms of military conflict, became a proxy war for others. So uh, the, the situation inside the country, instead of being contained as a civilian, if you like, uh, war, as they like to describe it, the Western media, for example, they would like to describe it that way. Instead of containing it as something inside Libya and other players from outside should not uh, intervene with it unless to help bring peace and security to the country, they are doing something different. Why? For several reasons. I will just mention two. One, the strategic location of Libya, uh, North Africa and the southern bank of the Mediterranean Sea with nearly about 2,000 kilometers coast in that area, which is very strategic uh, towards Africa, as well as the Middle East and the rest of the area. And the second reason, most importantly, second reason is oil. Libya is the, has the, uh, I think the second largest uh, reserves of oil, something around I think in the excess of uh, 48 billion barrels, you know, and it is probably the third in the world, if, if I am correct, and most likely to be the second or the first in Africa. And plus, it had its own uh, very good reserves in terms of finance, money, gold, and of course, other natural resources. So that make Libya, that made Libya, uh, if you like, a kind of uh, a big prize for the big countries like the United States, France, UK, and as well as, well as regional ter- countries like Turkey, ambitious Turkey and wants to spread itself, its ideology and the Mr. Erdogan, as well as, uh, you know, uh, extend its uh, influence, not just to Libya, but beyond Libya and use Libya as a stepping stone towards the rest of Africa. And that's what Mr. Erdogan is doing. The same goes for the Russians. Oh, the Russians, they have very good existence now in Libya. They, are, they, they became like the Turks, very important player, uh, even more important than Washington itself. Oh, you can't really do much uh, in Libya nowadays, even in terms of politics uh, at the international level, like for example, passing any Security Council resolution, uh, unless you have the support of Turkey, uh, support of Russia, because it's a veto power. Plus, it has uh, forces on the ground inside Libya, and they are still there, despite the fact that the government, the briefest government in Tripoli, as well as the majority of Libyans have been asking Turkey, as well as uh, uh, the Russian mercenaries uh, to leave the country. For, for quite some time now, for the last four years, we have been quoted for this and the government, that's the government position as well, the, gov- the briefest government, and the current government as well, to a certain extent, they, they want them out, but they still don't want to leave. So I wanna come back to Saif Gaddafi, but first, uh, just briefly, could you talk a little bit about this figure of, and I, I hope I'm not mispronouncing his name, but uh, Faithi, uh, Bashaga and uh, Bashaga. the role he has in all of this. Yes. Yes. But Bashaga is, uh, you know, he's from Western Libya, Masrata, which is uh, something like um, 350 kilometers east of the capital, Tripoli. And Masrata was the, 
uh, you know, the, the, the city that's buried the the uh, the uh, revolution, if you like, uh, rebellion, I'm sorry, uh, against Gaddafi in 2011. And most of the Islamists and terrorists and the, the people I mentioned earlier uh, belong to Masrata. They came from Masrata, including the Brotherhood, the Muslim Brotherhood, who are uh, who have turned into you know a political party uh, lately. Mr. Mashara in 2011 was one of the rebels, of course, and uh, he was uh, one of the militia leaders inside Masrata fighting the government, and then. His militia, just like everybody else, became involved with the sporadic wars across Libya here and there. And then uh, uh, everybody, you know, politically speaking, uh, wanted Masrata after 2011, after the fall of Gaddafi, of course, uh, wanted Masrata to be, you know, on his side. Everybody sympathized with Masrata because of what that happened to them in 2011 and so on and so forth. So they were included in any major political maneuver, any major uh, political talks across Libya. They were included uh, in, in one way or another. And they usually have uh, a kind of a leading role because of the, the, uh, the military force they still control. It's the most armed city in, inside the uh, inside Libya. It's actually a state within a state. Mr. Bashara uh, went on as a, as a politician and he became uh, the head of the municipal council, uh, head of Musrata, and then became the chairman of the uh, military council in that city, and then came back, to, came to Tripoli, and he was included, he was prominently known by, by the time I'm talking about this in, in uh, late 2012. And when the government, the former government, National Accord was formed, uh, that's in 2016, he was included in the government uh, a year later after the initial formation of the government. He was not there. And then he became a minister of interior. And once he became a minister for interior in the government uh, and recognized internationally, he started to make contacts outside Libya with different countries, you know, like uh, the United States and France and so on and so forth, besides the regional countries. And he started to uh, recycle himself, if you like, from a militia man into a politician. And he became, uh, I would say, quite popular among Libyans. He was a very serious man when it comes to uh, state affairs, when it comes to security. And he tried to curb the influence as well as the danger of the uh, militias especially in the capital in Tripoli, where he was located as a, as a minister for interior. And he succeeded to a certain extent also in integrating some of those armed militias into uh, you know, government uh, security apparatus, as well as the armed forces uh, to get rid of them and control their arms. But he has not been very, uh, very successful. And he became, as I said, uh, one of the figures, political figures in the country, uh, to a certain degree, you cannot do much without him. You have to include him uh, somehow. Uh, he doesn't belong to any political party. He's just an independent person. When the government was finished, you know, the, the former government finished, he, of course, went with it. But then he uh, took the unusual step, which is becoming friends with reconciling with Mr. Haftar in Eastern Libya. They used to be enemy. That, that happened in November uh, 20, uh, 20, 2021, just last year. 
weeks before the bland uh, 24th of December elections, which of course did not happen. And he was running for president for that election. Big, the elections did not happen. He, was, he already had very good connections as well as allies, strong allies inside the parliament in East Libya, especially the parliament speaker, Mr. Aguila Saleh, his, uh, his main ally. They contested the earlier mini elections to become prime minister and failed instead of Mr. Baber, who is the prime minister now. And he became the kind of recognized figure, uh, hopeful for to become a president of Libya. That did not happen. And he's still pursuing the idea of becoming, uh, you know, coming to power as a prime minister. And he succeeded become, in becoming prime minister because his friend, the head of the, the speaker of the parliament in East Libya made sure that he was elected as a prime minister when there was election inside the parliament for that to replace the current incumbent prime minister, Mr. Beba, and uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Bashara was elected last February as the new prime minister. And of course, he is still a prime minister designate, if you like, he could not yet uh, reach trouble, he could not enter the capital with his government because the incumbent prime minister, as well as the government, uh, his government, you know, Mr. Baba's government, do not want to leave the capital, do not want to give uh, to give up power because they think what the parliament did was illegal and so on and so forth. Is it fair to say that Libya right now is sort of mired in a, a corruption that is maybe preventing these elections? Did you say a corruption? Yes. Well, of course, yes. Well, Libya after 2011, especially between 2016 and today, is at the top list of corrupt countries. It's one of the most corrupt countries in the world, besides being uh, the most dangerous. And corruption takes different, you know, kind of uh, uh, different forms. It's not only, we are not only talking about money, but we are also talking about uh, lack of security, lack of respect for the law, lack of uh, law enforcement, that's also, in another way, it's a form of corruption. But especially financial, financial corruptions. In 2020, there was uh, UN-led mediations and you know, dialogue uh, sessions between different factions led by the United Nations. Uh, is Stephanie Williams, who happened to be American former diplomat, and she was heading the UN uh, mission in Libya. And th there was this session in Tunisia to elect the prime minister. And uh, it, it was that, that, in that in that session, I believe in November 2020, that Mr. Baiba, as well as Mr. Bashagan and many others were contesting before this mini parliament, if you like, small parliament, representing different, different political and uh, armed factions, you know, trying to elect uh, a prime minister and the presidential council. So Mr. Baber was contesting these elections at smaller scale, and he bribed some of the participants. All of them were something like 75 people. And he bribed a few of them who make up the, who lead actually, lead the major blocks inside the, uh, uh, the dialogue, it's called the Libyan Dialogue 4 at the time, this small group. So he tried to actually bribe it, not try to. Uh, some of those, uh, you know, uh, officials who are going to elect him, and he got elected uh, because of that. 
he became the prime minister. So ever since, everything is, you know, more than corruption. It, it became a kind of standard policy, if you like, even for his own government, his own ministers. For example, last year, no, no, not last year, this year, four of his ministers, not one or two, four of his ministers, and something like six, I think, uh, deputy ministers were in jail because of embezzlement, mismanagement of their funds, as well as misallocation of public funds to, in their ministries. I give you an example, something I'm planning to write about. I'm still collecting the information, but I have the, the uh, you know, the, the accurate figure, if you, if you like. For example, during the COVID-19 pandemic, Libya, like any other country, was hit by the disease and they were trying to get the, uh, the vaccine and they started with Russia uh, to get the Russian vaccine. At the time, the Russian vaccine was advertised publicly, the cost of each dose at $9.99. They got it, you know, for how much, you know? $27 the dose. The Libyans got, they paid for $27 dose. The equipments, the personal protection equipments for the frontline health workers, including nurses and doctors and ambulance drivers and so on and so forth, you know, it was averaging something in the international market when you buy a mass quantity, it was something like between 15 and, uh, you know, uh, $19 across the world. So you buy a complete uh, personal protective gear for one person for that money. They bought it for 45 and onwards. So corruption became, if you like, a national sport in the country. And it's trickled down, not just at the top level, it moved to the lower level of the bureaucracy of the government. So wherever you go, demanding anything of substance, if any, any, any document which is important, you know, like, I, I don't know what, maybe, maybe a passport to travel or something, you really have to pay. You will be faced by somebody at the administration somewhere who will make sure that unless you pay money, you will not get your passport, which is illegal right. Of course, you are not supposed to get it free. Uh, of course, you pay the government. But in this case, you will pay twice. You will pay the government and that a cleric in that administration somewhere in the country. So nobody has been held accountable for that. I mean, the Ministry of, you know, the Minister of Culture, for example, who, who was in jail until recently, and she left jail just a few, few weeks ago, and still being investigated, cannot banned from leaving the country. For example, she was accused of embezzling $160 million in less than a year of being a minister. And the same goes for the others, like the Minister of, uh, the minister of Health, who was responsible for importing the over uh, apprised vaccine doses and so on. So the political corruption or the political, uh, the, the corrupt money, I would say, in politics, poisoned the whole thing across the board in Libya and became the kind of standard used by foreign countries like Turkey to pay their proxies inside Libya when they want them to do something, whatever it is. 
So before we close out, I think that's a good segue into uh, the return of uh, Saif Gaddafi, uh, Muammar Gaddafi's son, uh, who, uh, as you know, uh, has basically spent the last decade either in jail or out of the public eye until he uh, reemerged to register as a candidate uh, for president in these elections. And as you said, uh, it seems like he has a, a lot of support and would have won the election uh, if it had taken place. Could you talk about uh, Saif uh, Gaddafi's return and also uh, why there's so much controversy over that and uh, why he has gotten so much support? Well, Saif al-Islam has been part of the Libyan politics uh, for quite some time, you know, despite the fact that uh, when, her, when his father's regime was overthrown in October, uh, he was jailed, he was captured trying to flee the country and he was put in jail. But he has never been, indeed, he has been out of the public eye. But, you know, uh, after the initial two years in jail, between uh, November 2011 and uh, mid-2012, mid uh, no, late uh, 2012, after this, uh, about two years, he was not really out of touch with the people. He, he had access to the people, but of course not publicly. You never see him in the media, he never appears, but he was in touch with different people, especially uh, those in cities that support him in Western Libya, particularly in Western and Southern Libya, such as his hometown in Sirte, as well as Bani Walid, which is very uh, nearby, uh, Tripoli, and Tarhuna and many other small uh, towns and cities and Western Libya, even inside the capital, he still has support. And the thing with him is, is it, it was not a kind of uh, something that came, uh, came about, you know, like uh, just overnight, he decided to run for president. No, he already had a very good uh, base, public base inside the country, of course, Libya, especially in Western and Southern Libya, as I say. And he wanted to capitalize on this. And people were asking him when there is a talk about election. Many of his supporters and many of the Libyans who happened to meet him every now and then, he would just call a group of people from certain place and invite, him, invite them, small groups, 20 people, 30 people, uh, you know, to come over and meet him in, in, in Zentan after he was freed, freed from jail. Uh, I, I should mention that. He, he was, uh, you, know, uh, you know, let out of jail after being condemned to death, actually, by a court in Tripoli because of the amnesty law, general amnesty law passed by the parliament. So he was one of the individuals who benefited from that law and he got out of jail and started, started contacting people and uh, uh, people were asking him if there is one day, you know, there will be an election for a president, we want you to run. So he accepted that invitation, but nobody really took it seriously that he were running for president until uh, you know uh, he he appeared in southern Libya and so and southern Libya to register as a candidate for the presidential election uh, back in October in 2021. Uh, the thing is, ten uh, more than ten years of failure of every single government that came to power in Libya after Gaddafi made it very, um, you know, kind of, uh, kind of uh, the biggest, made it, uh, you know, the, the biggest campaign force 
for people like SAFE because everything is failing. Nothing is working in Libya. They haven't been able to form a government after the death. So would say- So in a way, uh, it it sounds like Saif Gaddafi for many, he's almost symbolic because of his relationship to his father of a time when Libya was more stable. Exactly, exactly. And most of the people, by the way, since you mentioned this, most of the people actually support him out of loyalty for his father, not for himself. Most many people don't know him, but they support him basically because of you know he is the son of late Gaddafi, and because of the general failure across the country, the the, the country became a, a failing state. Nothing is working, and people you know uh, security is lacking. Basic services nowhere to be found to, to be found even in the capital, and people don't feel secure. Many, many more Libyans became very poor, despite the fact it's a very rich country, and SAFE decided to run for president. And every opinion board for about three consecutive weeks before the bowling day, and then of course the postponement, as, as we know, the actions never took place, every bowling uh, you know, opinion board indicates that he's the biggest winner. And that would have been, I'm quite certain, not just me, but anybody who follows Libya very closely, that he was going to win. And that was a very serious trouble. Why? They failed, the election commission and other factions, they failed to kick him out of the race for president, legally speaking. They took him to court, objecting to his registration, saying it's illegal and he shouldn't be allowed to run. But the court said, no, he is legally running. He can't run. There's no, nothing to stop, it, to stop him. So that what, was- What was the case for saying that it was illegal for him to run real quick? Because they still accuse him of uh, helping his father using violence against uh, the uh, so-called the vil- uh, civilian demonstrators in, in Libya in 2011. Of course, there are accusations of uh, human rights uh, violations, uh, you know, war crimes and things like this. And he's uh, still wanted by the uh, International Criminal Court in the, in the Hague in the Netherlands. And uh, yeah, I, but, I but- believe that the uh, UK ambassador to Libya, uh, Carolyn Herndahl, actually uh, had, had mentioned that on social media or went to social media to remind Libyans uh, that Gaddafi uh, faces extradition by the ICC, which I, I found interesting because I don't think, uh, you know, Libya isn't party uh, to, you know, that court. <laughs> Not just that, but uh, since you mentioned the ambassador, actually she created trouble for herself because the parliament reacted by, uh, you know, uh, announcing her as persona non grata and uh, she should should leave the country. They actually asked the foreign ministry to uh, ask her to leave the country, and the public reaction was terrible against her. As it, it became. Libya became very difficult for her to walk in after what she the remarks she made about civil Islam. Anyway, so they tried this venue, the venue that is you know still wanted by the ICC in the Netherlands, and they also the claim of you know committing murder and violence and all this kind of thing, and they took him to court, but the court said no, none of that is relevant, and uh, his registration as a potential, as a candidate for president is legal, and we cannot stop him, uh, stop him legally. If you want to stop him, stop him by force, it's your business. It's none, none, none of the courts will decide in that matter when it comes to using force. And Mr. Hafter, because of course he's hopeful to become a president, another hopeful, 
uh, tried force. Actually, he locked the courthouse for three days in southern Libya. And somehow, where Gaddafi uh, was appealing the court decision to disqualify him from the race, the, the after loyal forces uh, closed the courthouse for three days to prevent the appeal, uh, Gaddafi's lawyers from appealing. But then it became a kind of a, you know, a disaster, but BR disaster, public relations, if you like. And most of the people in Sabahad, it's a, it's, a, it's, a it's a big city. It's a, the, 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 the capital of the southern region of Libya. Most of the people were actually uh, staying outside the court building just to support safe. They, are, they were not doing anything, just carrying banners and black cards and his pictures and, you know, and the flag of his uh, government, you know, his father's government. And they were uh, kind of uh, staying there and protests against Mr. Haftar, his forces. And of course, they had to leave and let the court decide. Then the court said, okay, Mr. Gaddafi can run for president. We have nothing legally to stop them. The very idea, let me, let me finish this with, with this very important note. The very idea that a Gaddafi son can still run for president, and he is actually very popular even before running. That means everything the United States, the West, NATO did in 2011 was wrong. It means that whatever they did, including the use of force to make Libyans forget Gaddafi and get rid of him, did not work. The whole thing has failed. And yeah, I, Libya, I was going to say it would be a huge embarrassment for the U.S. and, and Western forces if Gaddafi won. Exactly, exactly. It, not just an embarrassment. It was, you know, a kind of uh, the biggest. It would have been, you know, the biggest proof that every, every decision they made about Libya uh, in 2011 was misinformed, was completely wrong, and we cannot completely disqualify the conspiracy theory as a factor because it was discredited early in 2011. Well, it's not conspiracy about Gaddafi. It's not about Gaddafi at all. It's about civil rights, civil liberties, Libyan being free and so on and so forth. But of course we know that's not the case. In closing, what do you hope that my listeners get out of the conversation uh, that we've just had over the past um, 40 or, or 50 minutes, and, and also what is the, the future for Libya going forward for the rest of 2022, in, in your opinion? Well, let me start by the takeaway. First of all, the first takeaway should be foreign interference by foreign countries and other countries that internal affairs is wrong. Uh, regime change by force is wrong. That's a, an internal matter. Nobody can come to the United States and try to change the regime, the government in the United States by force. Russia cannot uh, do it, even if it has the means, that's wrong to do it. The same goes for Libya. And that was the biggest mistake. Second of all, as we see it in Ukraine today, you when you decide strategically, when you plan strategically for a country like the United States I'm talking about, you have to take into account the local situation, the factors inside the region you are to uh, decide about. For example, North Africa, you cannot do anything actually of substance, including stability and fighting terrorism successfully without Libya. 
Libya is very vital, very important, key country in the area, key country into Africa and the, the rest of the region, especially in the, in the Middle East, and it's destroyed. That will only help the spread of terrorism as we see it today, expanding those extremist groups, especially into Africa, where they have very huge influence and they still get arms and finances from inside Libya, even today, enable, enabling them to stabilize the neighboring, neighboring country, especially uh, in Sub-Saharan Africa. This, the third most important thing I would like to say here is that if there is an international order, the United States, as it calls itself the leader of the free world as a major country, should give us the example to follow respecting the international law and order. Unfortunately, that was not the case in Libya, and we see it being repeated in different countries, including in a different way in Ukraine nowadays. Having said a few things as a takeaway, then for Libya. First of all, there will be no election 2022 this year. And I very much You, you don't doubt, see the election happening in, in June then? No, no, it will not happen in June. I, 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 you know, it's very extremely unlikely because the government that decided to go on and have elections in June, the incumbent government in Mr. Abdul Hamid is already illegal. It shouldn't be in power at all. Actually, it's a matter of days before it gets out, you know, somehow, either violently or agreeably, you know, if they if they can compromise something, you know, between the incoming Prime Minister Bashara and the incumbent Mr. Dbeiba, that's good. If not, then there, there is a very possibility, you know, of violence somehow. So that if the elections, bland elections for June, as Mr. Baber claims, according to the plan devised by Mr. Baber, who's the only one who's calling for elections to happen in June? I mean, believing the idea uh, that it will take uh, happen in June, just simply because he wants to stay in power. Actually, it's not because about the election or democracy. If that election is not interrupted by politics having him out of the government, as he's illegal now to be a prime minister, if that does not happen, it will be interrupted by violence because Mr. Bashaga and his supporters, armed groups and militias, so on and so forth, they are not going to be patient for, uh, you know, as long as Mr. Baiba stays in power. They are elected government, he's elected prime minister, he's legally the prime minister of Libya, so he should come back to the capital. So that there's no election in June, that's one thing. Second thing I doubt very much also, that there will be elections next year in 2023, because Mr. Uh, well, the parliament that elected Mr. Bashara, elected him in the condition that there will be election no later than 14 months from the date of taking power. He is he took power last month, so you you are talking about uh, you know early uh, 2023 or mid 2023 to have elections by the end of that year. It's very doubtful because of the situation in the ground. The side Libya became even worse for elections to take place than it was a year ago. Than it was late. Uh, than it was in late 2021 when the elections were on the cards on 24th of December of that year. So that's one thing. The, the overall picture, I think, we are not very close to 
cross-country violation and collapse of the ceasefire, because we already have ceasefire still holding, luckily, since October 2020. We are not very close to destroying that, but it's very likely to become kind of a severe division between East and West, but without the violence item. Violence will not be a factor in that. Other than this, the economic situation of the people, the Libyan people, who used to live very good life before 2011, uh, economically, I mean, will become even worse. More people will become poor. Uh, prices are already skyrocketing, even as we talk today. And I would say security, especially in the southern part of the country, will be, will be kind of uh, become even worse. As we see, that will lead to more armed groups crossing the borders in and out of Libya towards the south, more uh, immigrants, you know, coming from sub-Saharan Africa, wishing to cross uh, Libya all the way to Europe over the Mediterranean Sea. And I am not hopeful as well that the foreign mercenaries, including the Russians, as well as the Syrians brought in by the Turks, will leave Libya anytime soon because Libya is very important. Unless in the case of the Russians, of course, unless Russia calls them back because it needs them in Ukraine for some reason or another. That's the overall picture uh, in a very short uh, you know, way of describing it. I, I just wanted to squeeze in something real quick because I, I know I'm gonna have uh, listeners that heckle me and say, oh, you're, you're being too easy on uh, Gaddafi, how do you respond to people that look at what has happened since the overthrow of Gaddafi and still say, well, it was all worth it, or, or Gaddafi was just so bad that, uh, you know, he had to be um, overthrown? What do you say to those people that are, are going to lob that accusation? Well, I would, first of all, I would say Gaddafi was not as bad as the media, the Western media, especially the American, uh, projected him to be. That's not the monstrous picture of this guy you had in the Western media, CNN, New York Times, Washington Post, you name it, you know, the big ones, CBS, Fox, you name it. Huh? No, that, that's not true. That's not true. This does not mean he was an angel. He was a very nice guy. And no, that's not true. Just the same for every politician across the world whether, you know, a dictator, as he's described, Gaddafi is described in this, in this case, or democratically elected. You will find those people who like him and those people who don't, don't like him. But the main, uh, I, I, would say, I, I, I would say, you know, the, the, the main way to judge the guy is to see international as well as national indicators uh, in, inside Libya itself. For example, uh, the, the UN indicator for human development. Libya was the third in the world level. That, that measures education, skills, and things like this, development, and a whole other things, you know, criteria behind it. So Yeah, I, it I believe even that a, a lot of women were able to go to university under exactly. Gaddafi and, and things of that nature, yes. Not, not just that, when it comes to women, Women is equal to man in every aspect, legally speaking, including they. Women get promoted 
for the job when they are working for the government, for example, at the same base as men. That's why we have women ambassadors even before 2011. We have women judges, we have women in the army, women in the police, women in the university, doctors, lawyers, you name it, okay? The other thing, the other way to look at the, what whether Gaddafi was good for Libya or not, of course, look at the country, how the country developed since he came to power until he was deposed in 20, uh, 2011. Of course, I'm not saying he's an angel and he's a very democratic person. And no, of course not that. I'm not but saying before, that. But, but after Gaddafi is, is deposed, I mean, Libya has turned into a filled state. Exactly. After, I, I, was, I, was, I was just saying, you know, I was going to say, compare Libya uh, over the last 10 years since he was killed and Libya before 2011, when he was in power. And, and see the difference for yourself. I'm, I'm not, besides, as I mentioned earlier, which, which is very important indicator, the very idea that his son, his oldest son, and his favorite son, of course, Saif al-Islam, is still popular in Libya. After 11 years, and after being in jail and condemned to death, and becoming not just a, a, a popular figure, but also a serious contender for president, that says a lot about how popular Gaddafi was. I am convinced, Michael, if there is an election and if Gaddafi comes back today and contests that election, he will win. But he will not win by a great majority, but I'm quite sure that he will win the elections. Well, I want to thank you, Mustafa Fattori, for coming on Parallax Views. Uh, could you briefly, maybe in, in 30 seconds, let my listeners know how they can keep up with your work? I believe you write uh, occasionally for Al Monitor and also uh, the Middle East Eye. Yes, uh, most of my work is actually published in English in uh, Al Monitor, which is almonitor.com, as well as uh, Middle East Monitor, which is a very similar name. But the different thing, Middle East Monitor, MEMO, M-E-M-O, which is based in the UK. The monitor is uh, New York and uh, with, with an office in the Middle East. I also do occasional work in, uh, in, in the Washington Report magazine, Washington Report in the Middle East and First, which you mentioned earlier, uh, which is uh, published in Washington, uh, D.C. by the American Educational Trust, I believe. And I do occasional work here and there, of course, there's a lot of material of me uh, appearing in different major networks, TV networks like Al Jazeera, BBC, and so on and so forth. Uh, CBS, I believe, a couple of times and a lot more. Uh, I do a lot of analysis on TV, mostly in Arabic, but uh, quite a lot in English as well. Next up, Andrew Corbley of World at Large News joins me to discuss the election of a new president in South Korea and what his hawkish tendencies towards North Korea mean for the continued Asia-Pacific arms buildup. It's a story worth understanding, and I'm glad that Andrew Corbley could join us to lay it out and offer his analysis. So, with that being said, let's get right to it with Andrew Corbley of World at Large News. 
Welcome to Parallax Views, Andrew Corbley, founder and editor of World at Large and author of the recent piece at that website, North Korea Hawk to Take Power in Seoul, uh, Asia Pacific Set for Continuing Arms Buildup. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks, JG, for having me on the show. So if you could, uh, what is happening uh, in South Korea right now? Well, they just had their presidential election, and I'm not uh, an expert on Korean politics, but from all reports, it was an election marred by several spectacular scandals of, of the most uh, reality show nature. Um, extreme voter apathy, which seems to be common in a lot of elections these days around the world, and um, the youngest voting uh, demographics were the ones who decided the election more or less. And the man who took power, his name is Yoon Suk Yul, or Yeol, I'm not exactly sure, but he's a conservative, a kind of uh, neoconservative from a party called the People's Power. And <clears throat> he won by the narrowest edge in the country's history. And essentially what I do in my piece is outline how this is going to breathe a real breath of fresh air into the lungs of a Department of Defense initiative that had been put on hold majorly during the Trump administration when he kind of had his you know, sporadic desire to attempt to negotiate an end to the Korean War, which uh, for if your listeners don't know, is still actually going on. You know, it hasn't ended since 1956. There's there's a ceasefire agreement, but but uh, the two nations are still, um, how would you say, formally at war with each other. So what I do in the piece is just outline how he's going to take a lot of uh, stances that's going to probably lead to much larger American military budgets and involvement in the region over the next coming years. And if you could, since you mentioned the DOD, uh, let's talk about uh, what is the Pentagon's pivot to Asia um, and, and what's the history behind that? Well, so it depends how far back you want to go, I suppose. But let's just say that after the year 2000, the United States took a keen interest in uh, affairs in the Middle East. And as this century has drawn on, it seemed that we were only entangled further, further in, in more countries, um, which was great for, I, I don't know, it depends on how cynical you want to be, but it was, you know, it was great for arms manufacturers who got to build things like uh, Hellfire drones and or Reaper drones and Hellfire missiles and stuff like that to hunt down Islamic terrorists in the desert. But what it didn't sell was like aircraft carriers and B-2 bombers. And for that, you need a much bigger enemy than you know, uh, a terrorist group in a corner of Iraq. So the pivot to Asia is kind of a general term for the end of the Obama administration into the Trump administration as the United States foreign policy began to look at China as a greater um, threat. In fact, I have a quote from the 2021 defense uh, budget, which said, 
Um, as China continues its economic and military ascendance, it will continue to pursue a military modernization program that seeks Indo-Pacific regional hegemony in the near term and, and this is the critical part, displacement of the United States to achieve global preeminence in the future. Now, the key, you know, the key word there is displacement of the United States next to the words Indo-Pacific regional hegemony in the sense what it's saying is that the United States is the regional hegemony in the Indo-Pacific, pr properly on the other side of the world from our country. And so the pivot to Asia was based on the 2018 National Security uh, Posture Review put out by the Trump administration, which essentially outlined the transition from wars in the Middle East against terrorist groups to great power competition is what they what they called it and uh, and what sub, the subsequent Biden administration has called it. And that just sort of outlines the idea here is that you're going to um, in you're going to try to contain the power of China in a way you know, in a military, in a military way, in sort of like a pseudo Cold War buildup of radar, intelligence, surveillance, and air force cruise missile sort of capabilities in islands in the Indo-Pacific. Sort of, you know, like we kind of similar to our military strategy against Japan in the Second World War. So the pivot to Asia ref references kind of like a a geostrategic shift in the thinking of the Defense Department and the White House, but also uh, things, actual legislation like the Pacific Defense Initiative, Deterrence Initiative, which authorized $7 billion for the deployment of, as I said, radar systems, cruise missiles, and other things on various islands in the Indo-Pacific. And what I say in my article is that I think the new South Korean president is going to do a lot to advance this initiative far more than the current uh, lame duck Moon Jae-in, who has been, uh, who majorly scaled back American, like South Korean American training exercises, uh, aircraft carrier deployments to try and create the conditions for negotiations with the North. So in other words, Yoon, because he's hawkish, uh, could play better into, I guess, uh, the Pentagon's sort of pivot to Asia. Is that correct? Yes, it was uh, reported. Now, this is a translation, you know, so this is reported from, from another journalist based on a translation, but they said, uh, they suggested that certain statements made throughout the campaign of Yoon suggested that they would almost certainly, he would almost certainly return the longstanding practice of sending not only carrier strike groups to the Korean peninsula, but, but strategic bomber groups as well, capable of carrying nuclear missiles. He also said that, um, he apparently stated that you can only prevent war when you have the capability for preemptive strikes and have the intent to do so. This was a translation from the Center for a New American Security, which is kind of a hawkish Washington think tank. But in, other, in, in any regards, he has expressed the desire to potentially uh, lease nuclear weapons for South Korea in, in a similar way to the NATO sharing of nuclear weapons. If your listeners don't know, Germany 
holds about 61 nuclear weapons on behalf of the NATO alliance. And that's sort of, it's not really, they're not really theirs. And the alliance pays for the nuclear weapons keeping sort of together, but Germany holds them. And Yoon suggested that perhaps South Korea could do the same in order to deter um, a potential North Korean first strike, which, you know, I personally, just one reporter's opinion, but I have doubts that uh, South Korea has any attempt or North Korea has any intent to conduct a first strike operation. But um, that's clearly something that Yoon's election base feels is a potential possibility, despite the fact that, you know, recent surveys in of the Korean population has found that a large majority of them feel it's, you know, it's quite necessary to end the conflict as fast as possible. So could you explain your skepticism when it comes to, I guess, the South Korean concerns uh, that North Korea would would potentially do a first strike? Well, I think, sure. Well, I think now the status quo is where my skepticism lies. I think um, as long as uh, as long as North Korea has that nuclear advantage you know, no, no country has ever committed a first strike against a country that had nuclear, that also had nuclear weapons. That's true. The only country to have used nuclear weapons against another country is, of course, the United States, who did it against Japan, who, of course, did not have nuclear weapons. But this it's been now several decades of an intense sanctions regime and uh, North, Korean maintain, North Korea maintaining a nuclear first strike capability, they haven't exercised it. What could make them exercise it? I would like to maybe draw your listeners' attention to what's going on in Ukraine at the moment, which is that after a decade of telling NATO that, you know, the the further east you go, the greater our national security is compromised. And Rick Rozov is a reporter from Antibellum. He's, I think he's retired now, but he does a great job on his website of keeping track of all the NATO deployments. And he'll tell you that we have essentially surrounded Russia with anti-missile missiles. You know, so it's not necessarily nuclear weapons, but the standard missile three NATO anti-ballistic missile system is essentially, we've, we've deployed them in such numbers that we've essentially neutralized Russia's, well, in theory neutralized, it's never been tested, but we've essentially neutralized their ability to to retaliate in the case of a nuclear first strike. So here now Russia has invaded Ukraine, finally under very justifications, but of course anyone who knows the history will know that it's because if a nuclear weapon was placed in Kiev or in Kyiv, it will arrive in six minutes compared to Berlin when it would arrive, you know, from where it would arrive in, in Moscow in 15 minutes. So if you were to place nuclear weapons on the border, um, of South Korea and North Korea, suddenly you have a situation where the North North Korea is actively threatened every moment of every day. And very few people know what exactly goes on in that regime. But if you have that, that sort of threat, I think you'd be far more likely to see a first strike than if beyond ordinary cruise missiles, there's no there's no city killing danger for the North Koreans 
from having the existing uh, United States, South Korean military forces there on the DMZ. So I think if you if you place nuclear weapons there, you're putting the regime under enormous pressure because suddenly the, the dangers that I'm sure they have told their citizens now for many decades exists below the DMZ now becomes so much greater because the threat is a nuclear one and not a conventional one. So that's where my skepticism lies. I think if New Yoon gets his way and deploys nuclear weapons, I don't think he would under a Biden administration. But if I think if he did, and he did deploy nuclear weapons on the DMZ, I think you could probably reason that that would increase the chance of a nuclear war in the Korean Peninsula. So uh, you also, in this article, delve into um, North Korea policy um, involving, uh, I guess, what's been called enhanced deterrence and sanctions policy. And also, uh, you discuss a little bit of the history of the failed attempts to um, basically end uh, this war and, and bring about a peace. Could you talk about uh, both those things and how they tie together? So I think, um, I believe it is Columbia University, but uh, the fellow's name is Mark Weisbrot, but there's, there are some very thorough studies showing that the history of economic sanctions and their use by the United States over the last 30 years, 40 years even, have essentially achieved you know, nothing, regardless of where they're used, whether it's Venezuela, which was a recent example of the, the sort of the misconceptions about the effectiveness of sanctions and then or Iran or Iraq 30 years ago, where, you know, I think it was very famously reported that they that they caused the deaths of like half a million Iraqi children um, just from the, the lack of food and medical supplies. And if your listeners don't know, you know, exactly, they may know what a sanction is, but what exactly does it do? Well, one of the primary things that sanctions really do, let's say, phenomenologically rather than theologically, is sanctions scare the heck out of anybody importing goods into a country. Even if uh, what they're importing isn't under sanctions, right? I, don't, I like to compare it to a letter from the IRS. You don't want to receive a letter from the IRS, even if you've done nothing wrong. Um, it's You just don't want that trouble. And so, one of the things sanctions do, does is it just re massively reduces the amount of goods being imported into a country. And so I don't exactly know how long we've had, we have placed the North Korean country under, you know, some of the harshest sanctions in the Department of Commerce, but it's quite a long time now. And I think some, you know, people on more hawkish, minds of the situation in North Korea will say that the, the sanctions can help pressure the regime into giving up their nuclear weapons, but they have had nuclear weapons for two decades and have been testing them regularly and, and never have, you know, the sanctions ever limited that. I think what you can say definitively, the sanctions have definitely starved many North Koreans to death and definitely depleted many North Korean homes of reliable electricity. And so hawkish elements, including Yoon, 
and some of his uh, some of his already appointed uh, cabinet members believe that the sanctions should be applied in their greatest extent in order to encourage denuclearization. But one of the attempts that has been made, it's probably the closest attempt in recent history to, to settle this two Korean, you know, two Korea at war sort of situation is that um, when Donald Trump sort of kind of got this idea in the head in his head that he wanted to do this, it had created the, the most favorable conditions for an end to the Korean War since, you know, in history. And then all of a sudden, his national security advisor at the time was named as John Bolton. Oh, trust me, my listeners know Bolton well. We are not big fans. Yeah. <laughs> so he he famously went on the news and suggested that what they would like to, what the administration would like to see is de denuclearization of the Korean peninsula along the Libyan model were the words he used. And uh, for those of you who don't know, the Libyan model essentially suggests that um, the former president of Libya or whatever you want to call him, the dictator of Libya, uh, actually had some old janky nuclear weapons lying around. And uh, NATO quite pressured him quite firmly into destroying them. And shortly after, you know, some years after that, his country was overthrown, uh, his cities bombed by NATO aircraft, and he himself met a most ghastly end at the hands of an angry mob. So as isolated as the Koreans, the North Koreans were, they knew exactly what that meant. They meant as soon as we give up our nuclear weapons, we're toast. And uh, that kind of toppled the entire the entire process and sort of moon the president the current president of north korea was left with very little north korea turned off their telecommunication services and and didn't uh, respond to diplomatic proddings for more than uh, 12 months and so i think that um the idea that sanctions or pressing or or the desire to denuclearize the peninsula is the wrong history would say it's the wrong place to start the right place to start would be through the lifting of sanctions i think and um, because that would at least show that an you know an equal amount i think the best the best piece the best pieces made in in history you look at them you think when nixon went to china it's it's usually it usually starts or if you think about the Reagan Gorbachev summit, you think about these massive diplomatic efforts and they started with compromise. So I don't think um, as much as Yoon would like to, and it looks like there's a lot of conservative. I saw an article at the Nation detailing the kind of media apparatus around the uh, the anti North Korea narrative. The sort of pro-sanctions narrative in the country is very strong, but I think despite, despite what they would like to think, that will not bring the Kim regime to the negotiating table because If, if I could real quick, I, I just yeah. wanted to say, you, you'd mentioned in the article a, a favorite uh, researcher of mine, a senior fellow Jessica Lee at the Quincy Institute. Uh, for responsible statecraft. And I, I think the quote you provided was uh, very prescient. She said, 
you know, these enhanced deterrence and sanctions policies have failed to stop North Korea's nuclear armament and increase North Korea's desire for nuclear weapons as a security guarantee. And, and my apologies for interrupting you. Oh, yeah. But look, JG, that, I mean, that's true everywhere. It's like um, we placed the Venezuelan regime of Maduro under intense sanctions. It did nothing. He's still in complete power. And now, we're, you know, now that the price of gasoline is going up, we're trying to roll those back so we can get a hand, you know, a hold of his oil supplies. We put it, we put sanctions on Iraq for 10 years to try to convince his people to depose Saddam Hussein. It didn't. It starved many hundreds of thousands of them to death. And I think one of the things that nobody is perhaps, I don't know what it is about sanctions, but but I don't think, I think, uh, the one there was a libertarian can, uh, candidate for presidency. He didn't actually win the the nomination from the party for pres- presidency, but his name was Jacob Hornberger, and his he has he maintains that sanctions are a war crime. And I think, and he details very well that they never do anything. And one of the reasons why is because in these countries we use them on. If you think about Venezuela, Iraq, Iran, North Korea. Russia, China, whichever country, or Malaya, Myanmar, you think these governments have consolidated all major authority and power in the country. So the idea that um, you can restrict food and energy coming into this country and this will cause enough civil unrest to depose um, the regime unfavorable in Washington is foolish because it's not like in this country um, where we have, I think people have far more economic freedom. They have, they have freedom to own weaponry. That, that potential is perhaps more there, but, but these are, these are semi-totalitarian dictatorships and there's no chance that you're going to have a bunch of starved, you know, half starved people rise up and overthrow Saddam Hussein when he, He's the he controls all the wealth in the country, so he controls who gets paid. He pays all his soldiers to protect him. So you're not, you know, they're never going to achieve that kind of result, um, those kinds of results that Washington do. And that's that's as as prevalent in North Korea as it is anywhere else. I was going to add to that really quickly. I I think it's interesting. There's a lot of people uh, sort of triumphantly saying. this is going to be the end of Russia because the sanctions and we've isolated them so much. But it, it appears to me that what's happening um, in Russia right now is it it's it could very well be changing into a or converting fully into what is essentially a military state or a, a police state. And uh, I think we know from history that those can actually find ways to continue on for a long, long time, uh, even if they are isolated from the rest of the world. During the Venezuela um, unrest, uh, the attempted overthrow of the government there by American sort of led expatriates of the country in 2019, 2020, I reported that there is a quite there's a very obvious correlation between the sort of economic blacklisting of a country and that country's trade relations with other other blacklisted countries. And it makes good economic sense when you think about it. If you 
place something under you know complete illegality, you move it from a white market into a black market. So I think with the you're you're right in that you can I've never seen anything like this, certainly in my life. I'm not particularly old, but this unified response from the West, I mean everything from music performances to sports uh, competitions to you know the importation of goods, the access to internet services like Netflix and Google. I mean the the embargo of Russia over this is I've never seen anything like it. But at the same time, one can go over the Times of India and find quotes from their you know uh, their government officials saying we are more than happy to buy discounted Russian oil securities. So that's another problem I think with sanctions is is the the likelihood that you are going to isolate a country so strongly that there will not be one single nation in the world that won't try and take advantage of the discount prices resulting from the desperation of the sanctioned country is an impossible you know imagination it's a fantasy so um, and in, you know, North Korea is the same. To like North Korea trades with China, so I mean, you couldn't you couldn't dream of a greater example of a pariah state than North Korea. But even they can find people to buy their coal and people to buy their um, agricultural products. So before we close out here, I just had maybe um, one or two more points. Um, you know, I I think right now everyone is being swept up into what I could say is more or less a war fever. We have the narratives uh, that, you know, now is the time where it's, it's the democracies of the world versus the autocracies. And, you know, I think the risk point we're at is that we're ignoring the ways in which the biggest beneficiaries of this sort of a, you know, war fever that's being invoked, it's it's essentially the military industrial complex. I mean, arms manufacturers. Uh, could you speak uh, to the sort of dangerous moment we're in? Yes, um, I'll do my best. I'm one reporter, but I can try. As I mentioned before, a pivot to Asia, a Pacific deterrence initiative, that calls for the real the real big ticket items, you know, aircraft carriers, strategic bombers, military bases, overseas deployments. And if you ever needed a greater confirmation of your fears, I think you could look at the relation of the final military budget under Donald Trump's administration and the first military budget under the Biden administration, which is that the latter was higher despite the fact that we officially ended our occupation of Afghanistan. So despite the fact that we ended a major military operation, we managed to spend more money than the, than the year before. Um, whether or not this situation, and you, I'm a little bit optimistic, person, just one reporter's opinion again about the situation in Ukraine. I think, um, I think this is just a very, very big version of what we saw in Georgia in 2008 where a certain assurances from NATO allowed the president of Georgia at the time, this is of course the country of Georgia, not the state of Georgia, to begin shelling areas of disputed territory in which there were to be found Russian peacekeepers. 
And Russia responded quite swiftly and gave the Georgians a bloody nose. And that was the end of that. That was in South Ossetia and Trans-Oxabia. I could be wrong, <laughs> name of the second one. But so I think this is just sort of a bigger version of that. I think soon Ukrainians will sue for peace along, you know, perhaps Russia will also give, because I don't, it seems quite clear that Russia's invasion is not going according to plan. So I think they will come to an agreement. I don't think this is going to last for months and months. Um, so I personally, I don't know about the potential for an arms buildup again in Eastern Europe. That's been going on continuously for our lives. I see a greater danger with the Pacific because it's a bigger battleground. It, it necessitates the largest and most expensive items. It has seen the United States pouring billions of dollars into the development of hypersonic cruise missiles, which are kind of like a double-edged sword with both sides being sort of uh, equally horrible for the American taxpayer, because on the one hand, they've never really been shown to function properly. But on the other hand, if they do, then they give a very, very unique kind of strike capability to the United States military. Um, the battlefield is obviously far larger, necessitating far more equipment, especially surveillance equipment, radar, and probably um, that we don't have time to go into this, I'm sure, but probably my, my least favorite aspect of the of the military industrial complex as we commonly refer to it is the development of military hardware and its deployment in space. Because I think the battlefield of the Pacific, of the Indo-Pacific is far easier to surveil from space, which necessitates turning space into a battle, an area of battle. And when you do that, you are taking away from, I think, what the great dream economically and, and spiritually of so many people on Earth, which is to, you know, colonize other planets and stuff like that. I think you're getting strongly, I wrote about this mm, perhaps last or late last year, which is that the United States Space Force is sees China as their principal enemy, both in space and in the air and on the ocean. And so I think Unless, unless we do something to, well, I'm not here to offer policy proposals, I think, but that, that's just what I see. And I think you're gonna see it already. This, the Space Force is a perfect example because it was only started a few you know, years ago and it's already ballooned to $24 billion annual budget. They just, they just instituted a, or they just secured $2.4 billion to build and to, to, to form a national guard, a space national guard, despite the fact that they have only 5,000 active personnel, who knows why they need a reserve force. But um, I think the Pacific is, is, is the major, the major worry in terms of the sort of continual ballooning of the military uh, budget in Washington. Well, I, I guess uh, where I wanted to end with that is uh, on the sort of public discourse end, are you worried about where things have gone, especially since the, the start of this, uh, I, I, I would call it a war in Ukraine? Uh, it, it, it seems like a lot of people are, are cut up in 
uh, a very black and white picture of all this to the point where I, I almost feel as if criticism of U.S. foreign policy at this time, uh, if you're one of those people who is critical, I think, like myself, like yourself, uh, it's going to be a bit of a, a hard road ahead. Or, or do you get a, a different um, picture than that? Well, I wasn't a journalist in 2003, but I imagine in 2003, before we invaded Iraq, it was it was probably harder than it is now to express a viewpoint. I've reported a bit about the problem with neo-Nazism in Ukraine, which is, you know, that is done very well on my website. So it shows that there are some people and I have, you know, I run a very small operation. So but it does show that there is there are enough people looking for alternative information about when I when I say alternative, I just mean like, for example, we don't you don't have to you don't have to visit, you know, info wars to uh, get a third perspective. You just need to look at the biggest newspaper in the second most populous country in the world. You just go to the Times of India and you will find a national narrative that is as gray as, you know, an April, a rainy April sky in the sense that they fully aware that NATO has continually and against the warnings of Russia tried to push as close as they can to the the red line, so to speak, and that this war in Ukraine is a reaction to that and not an attempt to remake the Soviet Union. So despite what, yes, I agree with you in that I am seeing a, a mass single narrative come out. The only piece I've seen about Ukraine's repeated and worryingly associ you know, close association with neo-Nazi militia groups has been one post in Al Jazeera, which isn't exactly Western media. They are Qatari. Um, but, you know, Americans, and I think a lot of people have now viewed China for a long time as the great enemy, let's say a long time, let's say a few years. And now I think you're going to see the same with Russia, with Russia for a while. But then I think you'll probably come back uh, one thing we didn't get to talk about was the um, Biden's Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, which is an executive branch trade deal not involving Congress that he wants to negotiate to involve South Korea and other nations in the Indo-Pacific, but, ex but ex you know, um, purposely exclude China to drive a wedge between existing, you know, the existing economic fabrics of the country or the, the region. And I think you, you, we, we are disadvantaged in the United States in that we have, we have a, a state that desires to compete with two other states that don't hold regular elections. And I think there's something about that in the American you know, in the, in the American psyche that when you see somebody in the chair for forever, and I think at this point, both Putin and uh, uh, Xi have been allowed by their parliament to rule for their, their entire lives. So I think we are disadvantaged in that because it, it immediately opens the door to every kind of 
denigration of their conduct because, you know, they're a tyrant, they're trying to be a czar, they're trying to remake this, you know, it's, 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 it's so much easier than if you want to try and criticize a democratic nation where you have other parties kind of arguing with each other and that, but in reality, I don't think it's any harder now than it probably has ever been. I think that was a really long way to answer your question, <laughs> but I think it's not, you know, I think always before. I, I was just going to say too, I not, not to interrupt you, but I, I think it's difficult too, because I think there are things you can point to with some of these countries where they've made bad moves themselves. Um, I think what Russia did with the Budapest memorandum wasn't, um, wasn't very smart or, or good, uh, but you know, there's a lot of, I mean, I'm not trying to both sides this, but there, there's a lot of blame to go around uh, when it comes to foreign policy by all the actors on the chessboard. Yeah, I mean, for example, if if the world wanted the war in Ukraine to end, it could end tomorrow. It's like so many things. It's just a case of where is the political will? Does it exist in appropriate you know, amounts to actually affect to affect a sort of, as I mentioned earlier, like a Nixon going to China moment where you just, you call Putin up, say, what do you absolutely need? Then you, then you move one step to the left of that. And then you say what you exactly need, one step to the right of that. And that tends to work throughout history. But I think what you're seeing now is, what, and what is probably wor more worrying is than, than one-sided media coverage is the kind of one-sided media coverage. It's not just saying that Russia is at fault. It's that, it's that Russia must be punished. And when... Well, well it's, it's not just that yeah. Russia must be punished, but that, you know, well, maybe we should go to World War III over this. Maybe we should do a no-fly zone and not even thinking what that entails. Yeah, or, or just suggesting that there's there's no reason why after conquering all of Kiev, the Red Army would then move on through the steppes of Hungary and Bulgaria into yeah, like there's 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 this wild idea that now that I think the easiest way to say it is that uh, that the foreign policy aspect, the, the geostrategic rationales are not included in in modern media coverage and you're left with a real simple narrative which isn't particularly surprising to me but but um yeah that to suggest that we would go to world war three over this the country a country that used to be part of russia that you know it's just it lacks that kind of nuance that you would expect before a country would make a decision like instigating, you know, in, in, instigating a no-fly zone or something. It's just this kind of this broad rationale that like Putin must be punished, Russia has to be stopped, something has to be done, something has to be done, and that's always sort of like the something has to be done kind of ration that something has to be done rationale in these moments is, is very dangerous, I think. Well, Andrew Corbley, I want to thank you for coming on Parallax Views. Please let my listeners know uh, just in a few seconds here uh, how they can keep up with your work. Well, it depends what you want to read. If you're interested in this sort of work, you can find me all my writings at worldatlarge.news, which is my own website. I also write regularly for the goodnewsnetwork.org, which is the, it's as if in case you want to read the opposite side of that coin, which is 
um, exclusively positive news. But <clears throat> that's uh, me. I publish five days a week at World at Large. I take the weekends off. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Andrew Corbley and also that lengthy discussion about Libya with journalist Mustafa Fattori. As always, if you appreciate the work I do here at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me at the $1, $5, $10, $15, or $100 tiers at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.